Hello and welcome to the Maximum Theatre and Performance Podcast. This is our October preview where we discuss what we're looking forward to seeing at the theatre this month. Enjoy the show. Hey girl. <laughs> Hi girls. <laughs> let's discuss what we're excited to see in October. But first, let's introduce ourselves. Oren. Hi, I'm Oren Squire with New York Theatre Review. And Ben. I'm Ben Ferber. I'm a director playwright. And you may not know that once the FCC told me to, and I quote, please stop talking about Phil Collins' penis on the radio. Was this when you were in college? Yes. Or last week? Okay, good. <laughs> I, did, I did not it's know that phase. about you, Ben. But thanks for sharing that tidbit. Now many people do. Uh, this is Lindsay from Maximum. Okay, let's just get started. I do not fully know what we're in for here, but everybody seems a little punchy today. <laughs> hey, let's have some coffee. Oren, start us off. I'm going to first talk about Sinking Ink, so Ben can join in and also help me with the pronunciation of the writer's name. Nasangu Nijikma? I'm shrugging. I, I actually don't know. They didn't say his name. Nasangu Jikam, or... Nasangu Nijikam. Okay. Welcome to the club of people's <laughs> names we have mangled. We apologize profusely. I'm going to just say Nasangu. And it's directed by Nigel Smith, running at the Fleet Theater from September 25th to October 29th. It's in previews right now. I'm going to check it out in the next week or two. And it's at the new Fleet Theater space in the Tribeca Wall Street area that we'll talk about later. And it's a hip-hop play, which you don't see a lot these days. And it is about someone learning how to rap or freestyle rap. Now, when I first read the synopsis, it seemed... I, I wondered if I wanted to see it because the synopsis made it seem like it was uh, a family show of like, learn how to rap. But then I realized I kind of do want to learn how to rap because I don't know how at all. And I feel some racial responsibility to at least know how to <laughs> rap and or, you know, play basketball. And my basketball skills have deteriorated significantly. And is it, you know, racist? Probably. Is it unfair to put that expectation on me? Definitely. But I still have it. Do you want to know how to rap personally? Yeah, like freestyle rap. I can deliver rap, but actually freestyle rapping requires an entirely different part of the brain from reciting lyrics. Yeah. Uh, and... I remember years ago seeing Lin-Manuel Miranda <laughs> in Love Suprema Ars Nova for the first time. And he was in the Ars Nova play group with me when it first started up. And they're like, hey, we have this improv rap group called Love Supreme. And I was like, that sounds really bad. I mean, after, you know, when you hear it for the first time, I'm like, ooh, that sounds like a painful experience of like holding on to the edge of your seat, hoping that they don't mess up. So I went. And it was fantastic. It's one of the best things. And I was blown away. And this is before In the Heights. In the Heights was opening up a f in a few months. And there was slight buzz to it, but not that much. But I was like, oh, my God, who is this Lin-Manuel Miranda guy? I have to get his name right. Uh, but it was phenomenal to see freestyle rapping done off of people throwing out a word. An intelligent, well-devised freestyle rap that at the same time was coming off the top of their heads. And you can tell, a rap aficionado can tell the difference between someone who's planned a verse and someone who's freestyle rapping. And a freestyle rap is a little bit looser, 
but it almost surprises the rapper as much as the audience when they come across something and you can viscerally feel that it's as opposed to something where it's written and if you try to make it surprising like you wrote that down so i don't know whether this has actual freestyle rap in it i i disclaimer i've seen it i saw it the other night in previews uh it does it's a little hard to tell sometimes, but it seems like a lot of it, probably two-thirds to three-quarters of it, is planned out, um, and then the rest is actually freestyle. And are they given a framework to freestyle in, or does the audience toss out something? Or uh, It that, depends like, on the number. Um, it depends on like where you are in the show. Um, a lot of the time, they do context-dependent things, like there were a lot of bats in the audience, which is the young company at the flea. And like a lot of the actors were referencing the bats, like in various things and it was fun and fourth wall breaking. So like there is some of that. And I think a lot of it is story dependent. So there might be a little give and take per night, but like a character has to like say certain things in their verse. I remember doing improv a few years ago and that was one of the most scary, exhilarating experiences I ever had because it's like you're riding by the seat of your pants, you're on a tightrope, whatever uh, cliche you want to use, and then you make it to the end, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. And I didn't have an awful time or embarrass myself that much. And I remember in my improv scene, I got like a few laughs off of things that I just came up with. I imagine freestyle rap is like a hundred times harder than that. So that's what impresses me about this, and I want to see it. And yes, I feel a responsibility to learn how to rap, or at least have freestyle rap. There was a, a, a YouTube video a few years ago of this police officer stopping these black guys and telling them that he wouldn't give them a ticket if he rapped for them. And it was like... Uh, the the general reaction that we're all supposed to have is that's terrible and racist. The actual reaction I had was, damn, could I actually do that? <laughs> I was like, could I get out of that ticket? I don't know if I could. I could probably say some Tupac lyric and make it seem like my own. And he, I don't think he'd be able to tell the difference. But I was like, and I think a lot of black people, and there was a black community that joked about that. It might have been Chris Rock, mm-hmm. who said like, man, is that a way? Can I get out of the ticket doing that? by just freestyle rapping? I don't know if I could do that. It, it's something scary to me. And anything scary to me, I sort of run towards. So I'm excited to see it in a week or two. It's also in the new flea space that we want to talk about, right? I think we should mention the arrangement that the flea has with the bats. You mean that they don't pay them? Yes. So it's a beautiful new space on 20 Thomas Street. I have to preface that and say it costs $15, $20 million. I believe over 20. $20 million. And it looks like it. And it has the main performance space, an outdoor, indoor performance space that blends together. Uh, and then what, like a coffee shop or a cafe? They have like a lobby. A lobby like, area. And then they have artwork. drinks there drinks so you can make your money back here's my perspective on and they've got two other theaters like a basement theater and a first floor theater okay so so look i know in an ideal world or in a socialist country or a country that cares about its citizens we'd have some sort of system where artists could earn money for doing things out of love and out of passion and maybe art would be better in this country if we had that system. Uh, but we don't live in that system. And we are in an actor-saturated city. 
where there are a lot of actors, many of whom are good, who will never get the chance to even be on stage, will never get the chance to have any practice or routine down. Yes, in an ideal world, a, th a company that spends $20 million on a new space would pay a reasonable stipend to the actors. At the same time, as has been mentioned, the Flea Theater supports a wide and diverse group of artists. It premieres a diverse slate of new projects, and it's run by the only person of color in New York City who's an artistic director, I believe. I mean, I think there are artistic directors at other theaters, but I think this is definitely the most prominent. Okay, the most prominent theater, because National Black Theater, of course, is of run course. by. Of course, right. But yeah. like one of the most prominent theaters run by an African-American. So uh, we were talking about this before, and I get the shoulds, the, the people who are the shoulders, who are like, theater should do this. People should be paid. I, I get it. I, I agree in theory. But then there's the, the yeah but. The shoulders and the yeah buts compete against each other. The shoulders say, we should do this. And then I go, yeah, but you don't have to, so why would you? And I'm very reticent to tell people what they should do when they don't have to do. If I can save a dollar, I'm going to save a dollar. Should I? Give this dollar away, possibly, but I don't feel like I should be guilt-tripped into doing that. But I admire they are starting to pay people a $100 stipend. Yes. And I know a lot of theater artists don't want to review or talk about the flea because of the bats, but they're not. It's a voluntary program. And I know that's it's a tricky area because they're sort of dangling the prospects of being on a show out there to a lot of hungry people. Here's the thing, and, and someone can fact check me. I, they do, and I have, I think for a while, have gotten some money when they are in shows. Like if a bat is in a flea show, I believe they would get a stipend. But they are also, like what they are doing day to day, and this is like 100 young people, basically, and very few of them are in main stage shows. Um, they get the opportunity to be in those shows, sometimes. They get the opportunity to do serials, which is uh, like weekly. Uh, oh, yeah. I've seen those. Yeah, 10 minute play things that get rotated heavily. Um, and that's actually how a lot of them like make their mark and meet writers and directors. Um, and that's entirely them generated. Uh, it was started by Steve Stout, who's now the artistic director of The Pit, who was a bat when he started it. Um, and, but otherwise they're staffing the theater, they're running the box office, they're ushering, and often the actors in the shows are the ones doing that, so it's basically like as small an operation as they can make it. They are doing a lot of labor for less than it is worth, and that is important to note, and I think that the actors who are in that program, and I would love, if you're a bad and listening to this, um, please, weigh in if you can. I think many of them have chosen to accept that for the opportunities afforded them. Do I wish that that's what it had to be like? Absolutely not. I wish that we could just live um, and not have to pay bills. Like, and I wish that our work was properly compensated. But I do think that it is, there are significant benefits and there are significant trade-offs in being a bat. I know some people who just really, really don't like the dimensions of the BAT program. And then I go, well, have you talked to people who are BATs? Do you know their experience? Do you know the logistics of it? And for the most part, I would say the average 
opponent does not. There are a few people I know, a new dramatist, who actually do know the components and they're opposed to it, which mm. that's a whole other thing. I don't, I don't want to judge. I would just say we, we seem to be in an age where we love to use social media to pick at things. And I, I get it. I understand it. There's a lot of stuff that needs to be fixed in this world and in the arts world and in New York City arts world. Um, but I, I'm very hesitant to knock anyone down for doing what they do with money that is donated and they have the right to use. There are theaters in this city that almost entirely do white plays all the time. And part of me goes, uh, they should be more diverse. The other part, but 90% of me is like, that's their money. If a bunch of old white people want to put up plays for a bunch of old white people to watch in perpetuity on just this loop of the same five or six A.R. Gurney-esque plays, they're allowed to. I'm not going to be picketing outside to diversify. Uh, I don't even want to name the theaters, but there's like a list in my head. I'm about to name them actually <laughs> in my next thing. I, I don't, I don't want to sit there and be like, you should do this. Now, I think it would improve your theater. I think diversity isn't something that is a kindness you're giving to people of color. I think it's something that improves not only your theater, but the arts world and makes it more exciting. And anything that's viewed as philanthropic, we're less likely to do. If you can make people see the benefits of doing it to them, as well as their community, they'll do it. But the shoulds tend to exist in a philanthropic mode of like, you should do this because you should be a better person. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm not going to be unless I'm motivated to be. And that's the course of human history, American history, New York arts history. It's like, I'm not going to do it unless you show me the benefits of doing this. And if I can get away with not paying 10 people, that's probably what I'm going to do. If I can get away with not paying three people and I'm a small organization, I'm probably going to call those interns or call in an apprenticeship or call them aardvarks or bats or geese or whatever I have to do. Now, will I toss and turn at night on my giant pile of money? Maybe a little <laughs> bit. I might be like, oh, those, those geese. I should have paid those geese something. And but I think that's the problem is the <laughs> optics of this are so obviously ridiculous because it's, it's a $15 million theater that doesn't pay its actors. And so it, 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 that example alone is just, it, it, it's so hilarious. It's, it's so ridiculous as to be hilarious. And I think that we look at the same things everywhere. Like that's why Martin Shkreli was the first pharmacy CEO to be called out because he raised the price of a drug thousands of percentage points. But not because he's the worst, but because he was the most egregious example and something that was very particular, like on mm -hmm. AIDS, like a thousand percent. And he looks like a ghoul. So you sit there like he is the perfect example to get people riled up. And like with but him, he turned out to people. literally be a ghoul in every possible way. But there are a million other pharmacy people who probably have done much worse deeds, but it was on something that people didn't care about or didn't have a la as loud a voice as gay men and people in the AIDS movement do. If it was like children with leukemia mm -hmm. and some guy who you don't have a picture of raises it 5,000%, people might be upset, but they don't have the agency of social media and they don't have the demon that they can put on the poster. And we do have it here for the flea. It's, I think the thing that gets people is the cleaning of the bathrooms. I know a lot of times that's something we can easily remember because it seems like something out of a Charles Dickens novel. They have to clean the bathrooms. And in our mind, we go to like <laughs> the worst bathroom in a stadium after a U2 concert, and we like picture the rows of troughs filled with all sorts of you know human... Uh, 
uh, waste, and we think they have to do that. And I'm like, well, my I don't think they have to do that anymore. Actually, yeah. I can think I they stop that element? Just I just want to. We're not going to be able to come to up with a solution <laughs> to this problem. There is some good writing on this topic that I will attempt to tweet out on the day we release this episode. I personally find this a very bitter pill to swallow. I haven't been to a flea show in a very long time. I have a lot of difficulty with the idea of sitting in the audience watching people who are totally unpaid on stage. I also acknowledge that it is a complicated issue and there are solid arguments on both sides in terms of the decision not to attend flea shows. I think Mm -hmm. there's very little solid argument on the side of don't pay the actors. That just seems like a non-starter, but for the tradition of the program. I do think that one of the challenges in talking about this is that the contours of the program have changed under Nigel Smith's leadership. And so you've heard us say, well, I've heard this, I've heard that. I mean, that's part of the problem here is that none of us sitting at this table and many people who are commenting on this program don't know the exact contours of it. I think that the flea is not totally transparent about the contours Mm -hmm. of this program and that there's some reticence to address it publicly. So apologies for the details of the program that we've gotten wrong. Apologies for the things that have changed recently that we didn't know about. Like I said, I will attempt to tweet out some information on this topic and would welcome feedback on the program or on our own conversation on on it. But I do think we should move on. What's your thing? My first thing is uh, After the Blast, which is at LCT3 the uh, in the Claire Tao Theater, which is a Lincoln Center's smaller space. They have three spaces, the Vivian Beaumont, the huge Broadway theater. They have the Mitzi Newhouse, which is the like large, round, off-Broadway theater. And then their like, smallest, like, 100-something seat off-Broadway not off, off, sorry, off theater is uh, the Claire Tao. They do work by playwrights who are usually sort of younger or less established than like the other people at Lincoln Center. It varies. Evan Cabinet, who's recently become the artistic director, uh, has sort of vowed to lower that bar, which is cool, which is like why they did the company that did Then She Fell. They did their show, Ghost Light, and Third Rail Productions. This is by Zoe Kazan, and this is not her New York debut. She had a play called We Live Here at Manhattan Theater Club back in 2011. Um, she did the thing at South Coast Rep, so she's very established, but She's a very good playwright um, and a very good actor as well. It's also directed by Lila Neugebauer, who you might know from The Wolves, also playing at, LC, uh, at LCT. So she gets two of the stages, as she did at Signature last year with Everybody and the Antipodes. Um, she's like so blown up and it's wonderful because she is such a good director. And now she's basically the Annie Baker director, which is also excellent. Um, so here's the, the, the about. After the Blast is set in a wake of a total environmental disaster when the human population has retreated underground. Experience is simulated, fertility is regulated, and Anna and Oliver have one last chance to have a baby. So it sounds exciting to me. It sounds like a fun post-apocalypse play. I I don't know much about it other than the description. It sounds like there might be virtual reality conversation in it, which is cool. Maybe I'm completely wrong in reading that description. But definitely, like... I try to see everything at LCT3 in the way that I try to see everything at Roundabout Underground, Atlantic Stage 2, Manhattan Theater Club Stage 2, and Second Stage Uptown, because 
if you if you think of those organizations, those are the most powerful nonprofits in New York. They do, and they are the ones that Aaron was talking about that do all the old white people plays. Like, I and I worked at MTC, and I loved working at MTC, and the work that MTC does that I actually care about is the stuff they do in stage two, because like it's not the old white people plays. It's like more experimental, weird stuff. Or skeleton crew. Yes. But then that transferred to the main stage. But yes, go ahead. And it transferred to the main stage. It should have been programmed to the main stage in the first place. It would have Amen. It would have gotten the money. It would have gotten the ticket sales. <laughs> they didn't think it would. And they put it in the small space. But when you go to things in the small space, they always sell out. All of these programs always sell out because usually their content's really good. And they just think that people won't care on a massive level and they are always proved like everyone loves these shows. So keep going to see, to see these shows. What's also great is they're always like 30 bucks, like pretty much across all of those. It's like 30 bucks to see them. The tickets for this are $30. If you're 21 to 35 with their link ticks program, they're 35 regular. And a side note, Lincoln Center Theater is now, uh, they've, they've always sold through telecharge for their big spaces and a weird ticketing software for LCT three. Now they're selling telecharge everywhere. So be prepared for an awful online box office experience. Yes. <laughs> and I, I, I don't just say this. Like I, my day job is at Patron Technology. They do Patron Manager, which is also uh, like ticketing and donation software. But like, I don't just say that because I work there. I say that because every time I go to Telecharge, I, I, I feel this visceral experience of like having to click a thousand things a thousand times to find one ticket that's not the right price or section. Like, and having to just go through a billion things and I want to die. I just, it makes me want to die. So telecharge, if you're listening, I hate you. I'm always here for telecharge criticism. Okay. The, one of the things I'm very excited about is animal wisdom, which is at the Bushwick star and is presented in collaboration with the West Yorkshire Playhouse in the UK. It is by an art artist named Heather Christian, directed by Mark Rosenblatt. And the thing that brought this to my attention, in addition to it being at the Bushwick Star and me really liking the work that they produce there and having a high degree of confidence that the stuff they present will be very well done, is that it features design work from friend of the pod, Andrew Schneider. Yes. He is doing lighting design, art direction, and scenic design. Uh, the scenic design is also with Eric Farber. I assume that's no relation to you. Probably not. Oh, actually, I think it's spelled differently. There's an A. Oh, Farber. Farber. Not we probably Farber. have distant, distant relatives. <laughs> the Mayflower. So this is a production that includes a lot of musical music. It is described as a musical offering. So not a musical, but a musical mm. offering. And I'll just read the description briefly. Heather talks to dead people, gets freaked out, and writes music. Animal Wisdom is a lo-fi, idiosyncratic, folk blues requiem, requiem written from theoretical or actual, you decide, conversations with the dead, performed alongside poorly remembered Methodist hymns from the 1800s, hyperbolized family mythologies, and community rituals of the ridiculous in the form of a Gothic Catholic mass, because how else can you address your soul? So I think that sounds very fascinating. We will be covering this show on the mid-October episode, so if you are interested in following along, get your tickets now. They are only $20. There's also a limited number of $15 artist tickets. 
it has previews on October 11th through the 13th with an official opening on the 14th and runs through November 4th. Oren, what's next? The next thing I want to talk about are two shows that are down the street from each other, so I'm going to be real quick. One is Harrison Rivers' new play, and it is Only You Can Prevent Forest Fires. And it is the true story of Tara Lynn Barton, who was a forestry technician in 2002, who started the largest forest fire in Colorado history by burning her letters from her strange husband. So think Slava Snowstorm, if you've ever seen that, in the uh, nature's fallacy metaphor of the elements representing your internal state, where the snowstorm was the ripped up letters of, of uh, forlorn love. And this is sort of the fire burning from an estranged husband that actually happened. So Harrison David Rivers, by the way, it's going to be at Teatro Circular, 64 East 4th Street from October 7th to 28th. It's directed by Sherry Eden Barber. And I've known Harrison uh, David Rivers for almost 10 years, back when I was the director of new play development at Freedom Train for like three or four years. And Freedom Train was a black LGBT the LGBTQ queer theater company in Brooklyn. And he was one of the first uh, resident playwrights. And I would devise these different exercises. And it was very clear back then that he had a voice. And the question was, would he have an opportunity for it to be expressed? I'm so grateful that the Playwright Center in Minneapolis, am I getting that right, has offered him the ability to have uh, to pay his rent. Mm. for the lean years. It's difficult when you're an artist of color and there's a limited amount of slots and you go through these lean years where just you're still producing great work and no one wants to produce it. So I remember working with uh, David Mendesabo on uh, my play, The Gospel Court and the Faggots, and he mentioned Harrison's Rivers play, uh, Sweet or Sweet and Low, mm -hmm. or uh, Sweetness, sweet. a Sweet, that was great and it was around for years, but no one wanted to do it. And I thought, well, it must be like, 20 people, right? It's like, no, it's like two people. I was like, well, it must be like uh, uh, something weird. It's like, no, it's this. And I was like, oh, I don't know why no one wants to produce it. It's two, three people. And it's, and it's uh, such a feel-good play. Literally every regional theater should do it. And people just don't. And it's always a mystery to me what it takes to break through. So it feels like this year might be a breakthrough year with And She Would Stand Like This that was produced a month or two ago that I saw, and now only you can prevent forest fires. And he had a play up at Williamstown Theater Festival uh, this summer, too, where storms are born. He is he is in the early stages of, like, blowing up, which is great, because his work is so good. And, so, like, every play I've seen of his is completely different. So this is his Marcus Gardley phage. I remember when Marcus mm -hmm. Gardley came out of Yale, and he was winning all these awards, but none of his plays were being produced. And I would look at my watch like, what's going on? Like, how many more times do you have to win an award for the same play before someone produces it? And then it was like a damn burst. And just Marcus Gardley everywhere, all over your face, all in your, <laughs> all in your living room, all on your floor, all on your walls. We still need more Marcus Gardley in New York, in my opinion. Yes, all we do. All over our faces. All over your face. So I feel like this is Harrison Rivers all over our face this year. And we're going to love it. So go check it out. And you wanted to say something else about On Your Face? No, oh, I think okay. we've solidly addressed that. <laughs> on Your Face is the lesser known sequel to On Your Feet. 
<laughs> Gloria Stefan's cousin <laughs> on your face. Less talented cousin. <laughs> so I'm going to next up talk oh, about... Oh, wait a minute. Should I say also uh, the Burning Door by Belarus Free Theaters down the street? And that's running from October 12th to 22nd. And I've never seen Belarus Free Theater, but I hear great things. It's experimental. They're the theater company that's been banned for doing highly controversial political work. And this play will star one of the members of Pussy Riot, Maria Aloshko-Mina, who will be performing along with the ensemble. So Belarus Free Theater, back in New York, August 12th to the 22nd. Sorry, it's down the street from, from this theater. So I just wanted to join those two together. Cool. Can you do double bill? That would be great. You can like uh, do a matinee and then run over to the other one. I think you could like on a Saturday or Sunday. Nice. Mm-hmm. Next up, I'm talking about uh, Nightcap by Ike, and there's a little vertical bar between Nightcap and by Ike. It's by, it's, so this is at Joe's Pub. Uh, there's one night on October 19th at 9.30 for 15 bucks, and I think they require you to buy drinks. It is by, and here's, an, I'm going to butcher this name, Ikechukwu Ufumaru. He goes by Ike. That's his stage name. He is a truly brilliant comedian and entertainer. He... In all of the marketing materials I've ever seen about him, he's described as the son that Woody Allen and Frank Sinatra never had. The The way I would describe him is that he is... He has a style of speech that is very methodical and very absurd, such that he will speak very slowly and tangle out these long, complex, kind of insane ideas that like get deep down into your body and make you explode with laughter. He is so enjoyable to watch. <laughs> he did um, a show that I saw called Ike at Night, which was at the Bushwick Star. Uh, it was also um, elsewhere. He, he does a lot of shows of various varieties. That was a talk show. So when I saw it, he interviewed young Jean Lee about her theater career and what she was doing and sort of what was happening with her company. It was just a live talk show. They also did film it, but it was basically just like a live, like very slow paced talk show. Um, And this is a music and variety hour um, that they're doing at Joe's Pub. And so the guests are Paula Henderson and Phoebe Hunt uh, with Jesse Stacken on piano. If you can see this, go see this. I would also just recommend to follow him. He is so, such an enjoyable performer to watch. He was in just recently at Jack Asshole, um, which Knut Adams directed, which was a two-hander, one-character play about a doctor obsessed with his own asshole who was torturing political prisoners. What do you mean by Woody Allen mixed with Frank Sinatra? He's a really good singer, and he has like a quirky, neurotic sense of humor. I don't or? know why he says that, but that's what he says, and it that's makes his self description. I think I've seen it every time I've seen marketing for one of his shows. That's what that's like the first line. But did I don't somebody know write that in a review, and that's why it gets quoted? I I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, maybe, but it, it I, I I he's like the son of like Andy Kaufman and himself. So it's Andy Kaufman, Woody Allen, and Frank Sinatra. So like a nebbish, crazy, suave gentleman who can sing. Uh, yes, I've never heard him sing. I'm, maybe he can. I don't know. We'll find out at Nightcap by Ike. I'll be there, too. Great. Okay. Flux Theater Ensemble has a new show coming. We have covered Flux repeatedly on the podcast most recently with 
World Builders, A Love Story. So you can go back into the archive if you're interested in knowing what we thought about their past work. Mostly we like it. This next play is called Am I Dead? The Untrue Narrative of Anatomical Lewis, the Slave, by Kevin R. Free. Kevin is a playwright and an actor in New York who's was recently in Casablanca Box, which we really loved. Mm -hmm. He was an actor in that. He's not acting in this. And the play of his I'm most familiar with in the past is called Night of the Living N-Word. It was a play at the NYC Fringe in 2016, and it won an Overall Excellence in Playwriting Award there. I saw that play. It was very good. It was a parody of horror films set in modern times, and in the context of uh, police brutality against black men and women. And it was very sharp and very caustic and very smart. And I think this play similarly addresses the history of slavery and violence on black people in the United States. It is a reimagining of the Isis and Osiris myth. So I expect it to be very sharp and witty and biting yet again because I've seen his past work in a similar context and I thought it was very good. I'll say I saw a reading of this play mm -hmm. um, like about a year ago. Uh, it is so like out there in space. Uh, it's And it's got like commentary on Rachel Dolezal. It's got commentary on, it's got commentary on everything. Like it is, the characters are so like such weird composites of like crazy ideas and yet they are really strong characters. That sounds great. And one thing we love about Flux is that they have a flexible payment ticketing system. Basically, they give you all the information you need to understand that how much you pay for your ticket is related to their ability to pay their actors and provide for uh, paying their designers and putting on quality productions. So you get to decide how much you pay for a ticket. You can pay as little as one penny and as much as $74, which would be them paying all of their cast and creatives a living wage. Also, you can pay in between that $15, $29, and $58. This is at the theater at the 14th Street Y. It runs from October 7th through the 21st. The 14th Street Y over here yep. on 2nd or 1st Avenue? Oh, yeah. Great. And also, we'll be covering this in the mid-October preview. So if you want to play along, get your tickets now. I didn't know there was a theater there. Oh, oh yeah. there is. It's really nice. It's a very nice theater. I met Kevin for the first time after your play. You directed Todd's play. Oh, Emily Dickinson's Paranormal Investigator. Yes. We met at the bar, and I could tell like he's, he's someone I would want to see, not only on stage as an actor, but as a writer. Yeah. He's most famous for uh, Welcome to Night Vale, I think. He plays a character named Kevin in that podcast. Hmm, I didn't know that. I did not know that either. That was a smile of, hmm, new information. We don't know how to process that. We feel bad <laughs> for not knowing that. <laughs> That's me being out of the popular culture loop. I don't listen to that podcast. I've heard of it. I know it's insanely popular. He's also on a few web series, too. He yes, he has one called Gemma and the Bear, yes. and I don't know the other ones. That's probably the one I'm thinking of. I just multiplied it. Okay, what's your final My final one preview? is Torch Song Trilogy at Second Stage. It's running right now until December 3rd. It's Harvey Firestein's breakout 
play in the 80s that he wrote about a drag queen, 1979, who falls in love, in and out of love, and dealing with that. Back then, it was breakout not only because of his style, but also because you didn't see that many plays about gay people, much less drag queens flamboyantly gay, falling in love with a gay person that doesn't end with one of them getting like run over by a car or like lynched. So I am excited to see this play. Um, it's also the question of when you do revivals, how does this hold up to time? So I don't know. I'm not judging. I, I have, I'm coming in completely fresh. I just know it was written 30 years ago. And when you see it again, if it holds up, that's amazing. I don't know whether he rewrote some of it. It's going to be directed by Moises Kaufman. So it's a very smart director who likes to experiment with style and aesthetics. So even if it is dated, I'm figuring Moises Kaufman is going to tweak a few things, either put a hat on it or put a lantern on some of the things that dated or transform them. And it's starring such notable people as Michael Urey. Uh, I believe also it has, let me just scroll down, Mercedes Rule, Michael Rosen, Roxana Hope, Roxana Hope Raja, excuse me, uh, Jake DeFalco, Ward Horton. And I'm really excited. I, I actually like stuff at second stage. I don't know why I said actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's an interesting commentary. Someone did that to me this past week. With like, what do you think of Orange Idea? It's actually a good idea. And I was like, what? <laughs> oh, no. So I'm, I'm excited to see this. And hopefully I can get a ticket because it's already selling out. And they're like $70, $80. So maybe I'll be an usher. Maybe I'll sneak in a drain pipe and like shimmy through that and like peek in through the uh, air ducts to watch it. But this looks like it's going to be an exciting revival. Based How big are their drain man. pipes? Uh, <laughs> Can you like shrink yourself to two exactly. inches wide? Like I'm figuring they're big enough for, you know, hopefully for me and a friend. <laughs> they're large rats in the city. They're big enough for those rats there. I can, I can shimmy through. Okay. Next. <laughs> um, last thing I'm talking about today is uh, stuffed at the West side theater. Um, I'm talking about it because it was at the women's project last year, last season. Um, and I go to everything they do because uh, under Lisa McNulty's uh, artistic direction, they have turned a new leaf. They are so great. Um, and this was kind of a departure even for their new uh, programming style um, because basically it's like a comedy show plus. Like it is Lisa Lampanelli doing routines about weight about uh, her weight, about society's body image uh, impositions on women, about all of that kind of stuff. And there are other actresses in it who will tell sort of half personal, half pre-written stories about themselves as well. Um, so they, they put actresses of all sizes and races in it with sort of various different societal expectations. This is a different cast, a completely different cast than was at the Women's Project, so I feel like it'll be a substantial rewrite. It's uh, uh, in addition to Lisa Lampanelli, it's Nikki Blonsky, uh, Marsha Stephanie Blake, and uh, Eden Mallon. So it could be a totally different show from what we saw before. the The best part of this show, in my opinion, it's it's not it's not a traditional theater show. If you're going to see a play, it's this is not what this is. It is basically storytelling on stage, and. The best part was Lisa Lampanelli told a story that she's told on, I think, The Moth um, and other places about a partner she had who was morbidly, morbidly obese. 
and her sort of desires, her, her, this is kind of the best relationship she ever had in her life. And yet she was legitimately afraid at his size for his health and her sort of dealing with that along with her own desires for her weight. So it, it's, a, it's a very complicated study of what weight and weight loss and being overweight and society's expectations of weight are. I liked it a lot when I saw it. Again, it is not theater-ish. <laughs> so I would recommend it if that sounds like something that you want to hear. I will say that the tickets are $85, which is way more than they wow. were at the Women's Project. I think there are cheaper seats. They also sell through Telecharge, so I was it was hard to figure it out <laughs> when I was doing my research. Um, it starts October 5th. And this is Women's Project? You said it or? was the Women's Project. Uh, it is now transferred to the West Side Theater, oh, so I think it's that, different. It's like a commercial transfer-ish kind of thing? Yeah, uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if Women's Project yeah. gets some money from it. I don't know if they do. Yeah, yeah. Huh. It's weird. Okay, I'm going to break my own rules a little bit and talk about a play that is coming to Broadway because that play is by Aya Doktar. And I love his work. I think he is one of the smartest, most interesting playwrights working today. And when I was researching the play that's coming up, I realized that not only have I seen his earlier work, all of his plays, we actually have Maximu podcasts discussing all three of his earlier plays. And that made me so very excited. And I think that some of them are some of the best conversations we've ever had on the podcast. So I'll try to tweet out links to them when we release this episode, because some of them are worth revisiting. The first play was Disgraced, which started at Lincoln Center and transferred to Broadway. We covered the Broadway version, and I believe it's the first time there's crying on the podcast in regards to racism, but definitely not the last time there's crying on the podcast with regards to racism. And then The Who and the What, which was also at Lincoln Center, and then The Invisible Hand, which was at New York Theater Workshop. Our conversation on The Invisible Hand, I think, is particularly interesting in light of what this next play is about, because a lot of his work has dealt with Muslim Americans and Arab Americans in the United States. And then that last play started to be a critique on capitalism. And now this next play is such an obvious successor to that in that I believe there are no elements of Arab or Muslim Americans in this play, but it is strictly a critique of capitalism. Specifically, it takes place in the 1980s in connection with the junk bond era. And excitingly stars Stephen Pasquale. So oh. even if you're not into Ayadur, you're definitely into Stephen's acting. So there's really eyes. no way to go wrong yeah. here. This is actually on Broadway. Now we have mentioned all three of the Lincoln Center theaters. This is a very Lincoln Center-centric podcast. It's we, not like them rare. to have three interesting things playing at once. It really is not. <laughs> I mean, we love you, but come on, some of your programming. It's true. Um, and this is directed by Doug Hughes. Previews begin October 5th. Opening night is November 2nd. So another way in which I'm breaking the rules in which this technically opens in November but as I mentioned, Stephen Pasquale is in the cast, along with an enormous number of additional people. Another thing that is super exciting about this play is this cast of 23 
That is insane. Wow. We never see casts that large on stage. And I think it is very exciting that Lincoln Center is producing one this large. I think the last play on Broadway to have a cast that big was All the Way. Yeah, it's very rare. It's very rare. So there is an excellent profile of Ayad in the New York Times if you want more information about him and more information about this play and his motivations for creating this play. I thought that profile was so well done. It talked about his interest in economics and financial markets. But I will say if that doesn't spark your interest because you think it sounds complicated or boring, his plays while very intelligent and very detail-oriented, and I, I don't want this to sound rude to other playwrights, but his plays are very accurate. A lot of times people try to address financial markets or financial systems, and they really do not capture the reality of what it is like to work in that system. I'm thinking specifically of a recent play... Dry Powder? Yes. I... For those who don't know, he used to be a mergers and acquisitions attorney, and that play struck me as entirely unrealistic. So Very fun to watch. Uh, well done, <laughs> sure. Um, anyway, Ihead's work is just so intelligent, but also highly emotional. His character development, I think, is exceptional. This play, as, as reported in that article, is also very funny. So I just am... This is one of the things I'm more excited about coming to a stage in New York City than anything else in the fall. And the fact that it's coming to Broadway directly really shocks me. I mean, although I also don't know where you could do a a play that is this grand off-Broadway. So I guess it's kind of an all-or-nothing proposition. So as with all things on Broadway, the flaw is the cost. The tickets are $77 to $137 on telecharge, or at least that's what I could decipher from that website. <laughs> Two things. One, if you are 35 or under, there's link ticks, and those tickets are only $32, which is fantastic. And I will hint that I have seen these tickets and, in fact, bought one myself from TDF. So if you are checking that website regularly, you may be able to snag a ticket there. If you are not lucky enough to be under the age of 35, as I am not... So I am going to get tickets through TDF or Today Ticks. I've seen it there. Oh, you have? Okay, yes. so they also usually offer a discount ticket. Today Ticks, as opposed to TDF, gives you the last seat generally, and then they work forward from the last row. TDF will get you actually good seats in the middle and mm-hmm. then work back. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you can do TDF, it's better than Today Ticks, but if you can't, Today Ticks will at least get you in the theater. You, your nose might be bleeding, but you're there. And I'll say this, I'm actually, I'm kind of sad to hear that junk is on those services, though I'm glad that it's, they're at that price. Because when a show's on those services, it usually means it's not selling very well. Well, I, I actually don't, I don't necessarily, uh, I think that can be a sign of that. But I think a straight play on a serious topic in a theater as large as the Vivian Beaumont is just inevitably going to have more tickets than it can possibly sell. I think the fact that this is being produced by a nonprofit theater, Lincoln Center, I just can't imagine any other context in which a play like this can be produced in this large of a theater. Mm-hmm. And so the you know Lincoln Center has subscriptions, and so I'm sure that is is buffeting the ticket sales. And so 
It, it has not been on TDF regularly. I mean, I was checking like a, a maniac yes. daily for weeks and it finally popped up for ah. a few tickets. So I don't think we should take these things as a sign that it's not doing well. It hasn't even had a first preview. And if the buzz starts to build, then I think that your ability to get discounted tickets will decrease. So if you do want to try to snag a ticket, I would try to be vigilant about that now as opposed to later. I got tickets for Oslo using TDF or some discount service because it is a non-musical play in a large theater with no big-name celebrities in it. So, And it's not fair. In an ideal world, non-musicals would sell out just as much as big musicals, but... You know, uh, that is the advantage of knowing the system. It's like, oh, this is a serious play. I can get I can get sort of cheap tickets for this. Yeah. Yep. All right. Well, thank you guys very much. And thanks for everyone for listening. This has been a longer episode than normal for our previews, but we had some serious things to discuss. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Max Smooth Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions, comments or opinions that differ from our own, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us all on Twitter. Maximu is at Maximu. Oren is at Oren Squire. Ben is at Ben Ferber. And I'm at Lindsay Behrens. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximu-isms on them. You can get to the store via Maximu.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. We'll see you again soon. Theatrical Media.